Series one of the Disabled Debrief podcast is sponsored by Diverse Educators. Co-founded by Benny Cara and Hannah Wilson, Diverse Ed began as a grassroots movement that has the mission to celebrate the diversity as well as to amplify the voices of those in education. It has evolved into a training provider for the school system of all things DEI. Find out more at diverseeducators.co.uk. Join the conversation on Twitter at DiverseEd2020. Hello and welcome back to the Disabled Debrief podcast with Conscious Being magazine. I'm your usual co-host, Lydia Wilkins. We know that we've been away for a while, but there have been some changes at the magazine, which can be helped. But we're back now. Today's episode speaks to neurodiversity and what it's like to be diagnosed with a neurodivergent condition later on in life. As an example, autistic women are more likely to be diagnosed later on in life. We invited two people onto the podcast to discuss. Hi there, so I'm Hester Granger, I am 44 years old and I was diagnosed with ADHD last year at the age of 43. I run a neurodiversity consultancy called Perfectly Autistic and I'm also the parents to two autistic and two ADHD children, um, which is why my diagnosis came about and um, my husband is also autistic and was also diagnosed with ADHD last year, also in his 40s. I'm Sarah Gibbs. I'm a comedy writer and the author of Drama Queen, One Autistic Woman and the Life of Unhelpful Labels. Um, And I was diagnosed as autistic uh, almost four years ago now at the age of 30. As my opening bid to put a question to you both, I'd like to ask, what was the reaction like when you were first diagnosed? What was it like when having to disclose to people about your respective labels? I think for me, it it was something I've, I've thought about for a little while, not sort of years and years. And I think having read a lot about diagnoses in sort of later life, that a lot of people say they felt different, they felt out of place, they knew something was maybe didn't quite fit in with the sort of norms of society. And ironically, I didn't feel any of that. Um, and I just thought everybody kind of thought like I did, acted like I did. I think I kind of knew really if I looked closely that wasn't necessarily the case, but I just kind of thought that just the way I am is just me and that's just who I am. And I'm I'm quite full on, I'm quite, you know, hyper, I'm quite high energy. I'm probably quite Marmite, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I think for me getting the diagnosis, as I said, it was only after the children were diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and with both of them, uh, my son and my daughter, it wasn't glaringly obvious, but it was only during lockdown and, and trying to teach them at home with learning that I just realised a couple of things, just, it just wasn't going in. And, and I realised now, obviously, that was sort of down to ADHD. Then during their diagnoses, um, it was done via Zoom with a psychiatrist and she sort of was watching me and she said, oh, have you, have you diagnosed ADHD then? And I sort of was a bit taken aback and said, no, not at all, you know. And then I was thinking, because I'd been doing a bit of reading about it anyway, um, things were starting to fall into place. And I was like, oh, maybe everybody doesn't think like I do or act like I do or 
or you know so I kind of kept looking and being ADHD now you know hyper focused on reading everything I could and I kept going onto the website to book the, the psychiatrist appointment and then and then getting sidetracked and not doing it and this went on for a few months so when I eventually was diagnosed um, I actually found it's really helped because I think I'm just a lot kinder to myself um, and even as I say this answer I'm aware this is what the psychiatrist said was I asked you one quite simple question and you didn't stop talking for eight minutes so you know here I am <laughs> now I know why um well yeah for me I think that it was a thing that happened in stages um so you know I didn't I didn't have one sort of very straightforward reaction there was you know there were moments of elation um there were moments of grief and frustration and I want to say grief I don't mean in the way that some sort of parents of autistic children talk about grieving the the child that they wish they'd had I mean more in terms of grieving the effort that I made and the person that I tr kept trying to be when that was never going to happen and all that lost time and you know so there's a lot of anger and um and frustration that came up after I was diagnosed um there was also a sort of I guess almost a total elimination of my sense of self because I hadn't noticed that I had a neurological disability um, and I think for the longest time I sort of thought how can I ever trust myself again if I you know if I don't know myself at all if I didn't notice this about myself um, if I didn't notice that I was that different to other people and I, yeah I, of course I always felt different um, you know it's hard it's hard not to when you know you sort of go through life and people respond to you in a certain way that's that tends to be quite negative but I I had always attributed that to just you know sort of making mistakes or being young or you know all sorts of things that that I guess neurotypical people don't experience um so yeah I think there were lots of stages of sort of a, a bit of an identity crisis and then as it started to settle and I started to immerse myself in the autistic community and get to know other autistic people I really started to feel the sort of joy and elation and excitement um and and as I started letting myself be who I really am dressing the way I want to dress talking the, the way I want to talk working to my own schedule and I realized that's a really big privilege but um you know sort of slowing down and, and stopping trying to keep up with everyone else and starting to work at my own pace and allow myself to be yeah my more, more authentic self that's when the autistic joy really started to come out so it didn't happen overnight but it was a process and you know I'm, I'm happy with where I've got to eventually. Having read Drama Queen this is a question I wanted to ask you Zara and also to put to you as well Hester um, in the book, it's really quite interesting because there's a lot to do with your father, for example, and how you believe retrospectively that he was also autistic. So I was wondering, could we both comment in respect of parents and the possibility of sharing a diagnosis? Um, should they be assessed at the same time that their children are, possibly? Um I, I agree. Um, I do think that anecdotally it does seem that there is some sort of hereditary element to being neurodivergent in whatever way that if you are ADHD or autistic that your children are likely to be as well or vice versa um, or that at the very least it should be examined. Um, I do worry about um, sort of 
proclaiming that there's a genetic element. And the reason for that is that um, we've seen recently um, with studies um, like, um, I'm not going to name any specific uh, studies just because I, I don't want to get sued by um, claiming that anything is a bit eugenics-y, but um, you know, we've seen certain studies recently by certain prominent autism figures who, which have been looking effectively for a genetic component to autism um for what purpose they they wouldn't say um to to ostensibly uh, help autistic people which seems you know uh, how um you know but um anyway the, the the idea is obviously that if you isolate an autistic gene so to speak you can cure autism so that that worries me um so i think as long as it remains anecdotal and it re remains in the realm of just you know looking at parents or looking at children when one or the other is diagnosed and i'm absolutely happy with it the minute we start looking for the genetic factor in it in any meaningful scientific way that worries me i'm as sure as you can be diagnosing someone posthumously without their input um, that he must have been autistic because there were so many behaviors that that seemed consistent uh, you know he would line up all his pencils on his desk um, he would buy the same car every few years he would upgrade and he would have the date in his diary you know four years ahead and he would have a diary four years ahead somehow <laughs> I don't know where he got a diary that that had a four-year planner <laughs> but he he somehow found one and he did that um, you know he he would notice if you got him a different brand of water and it tasted off you know he he really and and, and of course I, I feel that he had meltdowns um because he was he was quite sensitive to noise and sensory inputs and at the end of a long working day he found that quite hard to tolerate and so growing up that was quite difficult because obviously I didn't understand you know knowing now as an adult what I know I don't take it as personally but as a child it felt really personal that I was annoying my dad and that he would shout at me for talking at the dinner table so yeah I, I do think definitely that um you know that he was also autistic and that actually our autistic traits were so similar that we kept setting each other off yeah I think just picking up on Sarah's point it's really interesting you say about you two having sort of used to set each other off because um you know my husband's autistic and the children are autistic and quite often I have to remind the children don't forget daddy's autistic too and then also I have to say to my husband, don't forget the children are autistic as well. So it's quite an interesting, obviously I'm not autistic myself, but it's it's quite an interesting dynamic sometimes because, you know, noise levels and sensitivities and things like that. And we just kind of have to remind the family that, you know, you three are autistic. So let's all just be kind and sensitive to each other's needs because otherwise it can be, can be quite tricky. I think, yeah, looking at, at labels and parents and things like that, I think since my diagnosis, um, which I think when it comes to ADHD, a lot of people are quite dismissive. And I had lots of people going, well, you can't have ADHD because you're really organized or you're this or you're that. It's like, I'm not organized at all. It's, you know, a swan, you know, in water paddling along and underneath it's absolute carnage. Um, and I think my mum, who's in her seventies now, has sort of, when I talked about it with her and explained, she, didn't mean to but she kept going oh well, everyone does that no oh, and everyone does that and I sort of had to say actually when you do that you're kind of belittling how I'm feeling um and she's sort of in her late 70s and you know she's sort of saying well oh, you know but then interesting had, had quite an interesting childhood sort of quite challenging so it's like well here's a possibly quite controversial question to put to both of you 
on Twitter recently, it was suggested that autism and ADHD could become or should become part of the same diagnostic criteria, that they should effectively be amalgamated under the same umbrella, if you like. I was wondering, what did you both think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And I, I think personally that, you know, I'm no expert, I think, but I think they should be kept separate because I very much, obviously I know, you know, there are lots of comorbidities, aren't there, with neurodivergent conditions. Um, but I know having done a lot of reading and obviously, you know, we run a neurodiversity consultancy, et cetera, you know, I'm not autistic. I'm, I'm aware of that, but I, I do know, you know, being diagnosed with ADHD and obviously, you know, my husband and I have been together for 20 years now, and he sort of keeps saying lately, it's really interesting how similar being autistic and having ADHD is and not with everything at all, but just in certain elements, because sometimes I can just, you know, some typical sort of autistic traits, you know, I can just take things really, you know, really literally or, you know, there's a whole raft of different things that I would deem to be more under sort of autism spectrum condition than ADHD. But I, I think if it was, put together I don't think I'd get a diagnosis because I don't feel that I have any autistic you know I have many autistic traits at all so I think personally they should be kept kept separately yeah I think it's kind of an odd suggestion isn't it because uh, I think that this happens every now and then on Twitter where people say something that's very all or nothing um, and I th yeah. think what, what's happening is it's, it's people who may be a little bit newer to the conversation or the other way around people who are so immersed in the conversation that they sort of maybe gone off a deep end a little bit um, that they so that sort of lose lose um, focus on the reality of the situation I don't think it makes any sense to lump everything in together and to only diagnose people with ADHD or, or as autistic if if you meet all of the criteria I think that that's just absurd um but you know I've, I've seen a lot of that around on Twitter people will just make these big declarations like someone you know I see I see it a lot with people who are quite new to the conversation saying I'm not disabled society disables me it's like well okay that's great for you but like you know a lot of us are disabled you know and I understand the societal model of of disability is a really important perspective because you know we there are elements of society that disable us and there are you know there are elements of that that are just barriers to inclusion and that's really important to look at but to sort of dismiss people's inherent disability as as you know non-existent I can be sitting in a completely dark room by myself and still struggle with certain things because I'm autistic so you know there's a lot of big bold declarations that happen that with without a lot of nuance and I think people just need to calm down um and you know uh, perhaps leave things to to experts in some areas to kind of build on that, this is something that I wanted to ask you both. Could um, the way we talk about neurodiverse conditions potentially be barriers to women who've been diagnosed later on in life? Um, to pick up on the point about, sorry, you were saying about disability versus its society that disables me. Um, very often I've noticed how organisations and figureheads have started using language such as, oh, this person is not disabled, they are neurodivergent. Um, mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of inference and they use quite a lot of language in terms of superpowers and that concept um, with the idea that we are not, that this is not a disability. Now, 
people are completely free, obviously, to use the language that they like. But I was wondering what you both thought about this in terms of potential access to being diagnosed as ADHD, autistic, whatever. Well, I was just going to say, just quickly pick up on the whole superpower term. I have to say, I hate it. I find a lot of people that use it are quite often parents who aren't neurodivergent themselves and they want to feel good about their child being autistic. And I get asked this all the time. So what are your children's superpowers? Can they sketch St Paul's Cathedral but they've never been? Or can they play Mozart without having ever read music? And I'm like, they're kind and they're funny. That's their superpower. And I think it's often something that's used in the media um, you know, I'm sort of of a, of a certain era, you know, of, of Rain Man and, and people are like, oh, he's superpower. And obviously he's savant. So it's, it, you know, he's not even autistic. I think that term needs to be, fair enough, if you want to refer to yourself as having a superpower, you know, and I think there's sometimes with neurodivergent conditions where, you know, say, for example, obviously me being autistic, uh, me having ADHD, sorry. Um, you know, I don't, I'm almost... It's really hard almost because being neurodivergent is a spectrum and sometimes you almost feel like you're not quite enough of either. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? So I, we had a really interesting conversation with a, a woman recently and she sort of said, I almost feel I'm, I'm not autistic enough to be part of the autistic community, but I'm not, you know, I, and I don't have loads of support needs. I just kind of feel I'm in the middle. And I think there's a lot of people with neurodivergent conditions who are just your, your average Joes who happen to be, you know, autistic or have ADHD um, or be dyslexic etc and actually you're just kind of normal people doing your normal thing you're not full of superpowers mm. I could rant about this for ages sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, no I totally agree and I think um you know once I start scaling buildings we can talk about superpowers um yeah. but like so far my only real autistic superpower is making all my friends disappear um so that's uh, yeah not not the greatest but I mean no I think it, it's just you know like there are strengths to being autistic and there are difficulties and it just is it's not you know it's just so it's it, it's not it's 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 a difference and it comes with more challenges than being neurotypical um it's not a difference in terms of like it's simply a difference and 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 nothing else and there's no challenges and that's it um equally it's not an illness and they don't want to cure you know it's a really complex picture um that doesn't make life easy for me that doesn't make being autistic easy um i actually find the superpower narrative nauseating and i also I hate it because you know I do have a, a, a sort of I wouldn't call it a superpower at all but you know I have an, an interest in writing and and that's what I do so I actually have pretty high support needs and I don't mean that in terms of you know I need help going to the bathroom or I, 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 I'm non-speaking but I have high support needs in terms of I have a, a really quite severe chronic pain condition and so my husband that's that's a comorbidity um you know my executive function issues are, are quite severe especially when I'm in pain um you know I, I can't really cook for myself or or you know even sort of get from A to B just around the house sometimes without help and support um and so you know but people are like oh but you write books so you're mm. fine that's your superpower it's like well it's it's so complicated it you know being autistic is this big spiky ball of you know things jutting out at different lengths and also I bet with you Sarah as well like do people sort of go oh superpowers like make you you know you make people laugh and you're really funny is that kind of does that ever come up yeah I think people are surprised when I can be funny because they expect autistic people to not understand humor 
they expect us to sort of be humorless yeah. and po-faced and like they don't that you know it's it sort of surprises people and no one's ever called it my superpower um which I'm quite disappointed about actually why why not um if anyone wants to call my comedy my superpower please do if pref- preferably on Twitter we'll, we'll get that trending on Twitter shall we <laughs> excellent <laughs> Let's talk more about the term superpower. Can it be potentially a barrier to diagnosis? Personally, I feel for me as a diagnosed autistic woman, it was simply on the grounds that um, for so long, I was basically undetected as an autistic person, um, simply because it was kind of seen in a sort of su- superpowery way in the sense of could this person be different no it's just a superpower therefore we don't need to support her type thing along with that I think there are a lot of stereotypes and it took me three and a half years from the point of referral from my GP to actually getting the diagnosis but that's totally normal in the UK it shouldn't be but I kind of feel that I personally detest the superpower narrative because I view it as having blocked me off for so long and also because people often don't take me seriously in terms of my access needs. I think that's quite a difficult one because I don't really think people use the term superpower until you've been diagnosed. And I definitely, I have to say, I think superpower is much more linked to being autistic, obviously, than ADHD. With ADHD, it's quite often, you you know, it's your hyper-focus and something that's you know, a different conversation than having a superpower. But interestingly, there's a lot of chat. I'm a member of a really good Facebook group with ADHD women and a lot of sort of what's your hyper-focus, but obviously that's something that lasts for a sort of finite amount of time. Um, so, but I do I do find the whole sort of hyper-focus very interesting um, because I'd not really picked up on that's what I have, if that makes sense. And I can hyper-focus on certain things at certain times. And then when that moment's gone, it's gone. Um, so I, I try and harness that hyperfocus and I can I can actually feel when it's dwindling. So I'm almost like a sort of battery running out of power and I'm always like, right, quick, to 10 more minutes to try and get whatever it is done. Because, um, you know, my husband and I used to joke that if a DIY project couldn't be done in 24 hours, well, eight hours, for example, during the day, it would never get finished. And now I get that because that was a hyperfocus. So I find that really interesting being diagnosed now, looking back um, at all the different all the different times when the this hyperfocus has come into play. I just think so. I think there are lots of barriers to women get getting diagnosed, but I'm not sure the superpower narrative is is the biggest one. I think it's more that people expect certain behaviours of of people who are socialised as girls and women, and they there's a sort of certain way that we're socialised, um, and there are certain behaviours that are maybe written off as hysteria or you know uh, drama, so to speak. Um, that that are more to do with misogynistic assumptions than than anything else. I think a lot of women with ADHD, I mean, God, that's talking about trying to speak for <laughs> all women. I mean, like, you know, as I said, I'm part of this Facebook community. I've connected with a lot of women with ADHD who were diagnosed later in life. Um, and I think that was a perception when I first got diagnosed. Like, I, I have quite a busy life. I do a few different things work-wise. Um, just I'm always kind of 100 miles an hour we really struggle with the exact function side so actually you know you can take lots of positives from it obviously but actually um 
you know, it can be really frustrating, debilitating, etc. Um, I mean, I literally had a conversation with my husband earlier and realised 15 minutes in, I was meant to have told him something that was quite important and completely forgotten. He's like, I've literally been sitting here waiting for you to tell me this. And I was like, oh, because in my head, I'm 100 miles an hour and I'm already doing this podcast, even though it hadn't started. And do you know what I mean? So it's quite interesting, but I wouldn't, I think the hyper-focus, I mean, that's brilliant that some people feel it's their, their superpower, but I think for me, it's, it's just part of who I am and I've always had that. And I've been really interested in certain topics and get really obsessed with it and go down rabbit holes. Um, and then I move on, you know, kind of as quickly as it, as, it, as it come and arrives and I've been into it, my interest has dwindled for I have a million thoughts a day and I forget 99% of them, which is really frustrating. Mm-hmm.